Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the Row Crop Short Course in Starkville, Mississippi. I almost said Stonewall, Tom. So <laughs> don't, Tom don't do and that. I are at the Row Crop Short Course. This is day two, early morning. We got a big day scheduled with our platinum sponsor podcast that we're going to be recording. But right now we have one of our speakers with us, Dr. Terry Spurlock from the University of Arkansas. Terry, thank you for coming to Starville, A, and then B, thank you for taking time out of your schedule to sit down and talk with us this morning. My pleasure. Well, we try to get all the plant pathologists on this as we get them around because, you know, it's kind of a small group of people when we don't regularly get together. That's right. And it's it something we need to spend more time talking about. And again, we, you know, we did those yesterday, Tom. We're all out of order talking about them, but I think we said that yesterday too so we we recorded a couple things yesterday that we'll release later on in the winter time well and i think the good news is i think the listeners catch on to the fact that we try to record sometimes a large offering of recordings and the time when we have people together because it's easier to do this in person than it is on the phone oh, and, that, and that's, that's what i was going to say that's what i was going to say because we we did that one with dr bird yesterday and You'll hear this before you hear the one with Dr. Bird, but I, I've always wanted to record something with Bird, but I knew I didn't want to do it over the phone because uh, <laughs> Bird with an open mic is always entertaining. He's an exceptional character. <laughs> he, was, he was in rare form yesterday afternoon. Terry and I have a little bit of a history together. Terry's done some work on my dad's place in Arkansas over the years, so uh, I don't think we had ever actually met before yesterday, but we did have a little bit of connection there, so Terry's finally, it's good to finally meet you. So it's coming up on Christmas time. What's your best Christmas present that you ever got? Oh, man, that's easy. Uh, when I was about nine years old, I got a four-wheeler, uh-huh. and I don't, I don't know if y'all remember these, but I was a Kawasaki man, so I had, before that, I had a KX-80, a green dirt bike. Uh, my mama saw me jumping bar ditches down the side of the highway, and I was going a little too high, and she told my dad, it's gone, sell it. And so uh, I got a four-wheeler that was supposedly much safer that next Christmas after they sold my dirt bike, and I never wrecked that four-wheeler. I think I wrecked that dirt bike every single day I rode it, but I never wrecked the four-wheeler. Great present, and mom and dad, they were, you know, I, I don't know that they had the money at the time to buy it, but they figured it out, and it was great. I kept it forever. So Kawasaki, it was a big deal back then. You know, those early four-wheelers, Kawasaki was one of the, the early ones there. Did it have suspension on it, or did it have no suspension? In the front, it did. Okay. So no it, suspension in the back. Yeah, yeah, straight axle in the back. Had that, some, that had some temper- springs that in the That temperature jumping a little bit with no suspension <laughs> in the back. Well, you know, but it had those big, you know, the yeah, big turf float. tires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you'd bounce when you hit, <laughs> and that was always good. It was a lot of fun. I don't know why. I mean, parents, I don't know. They should have never bought us those things. <laughs> Absolutely not. I'd leave it in the summertime. I'd leave when the sun rose, and I'd come in just as oh, it yeah. was getting dark. Uh, no. And they never saw me all day. I don't know if I ate anything. I just rode as, until I ran out of gas. I don't get a good feel for whether or not my parents actually listen to this podcast. I kind of caught some things at Thanksgiving that led me to believe that at least my brother does listen to this. So odds are... I'd be a little careful what I say, but I think my parents were more along the lines of, like, the safety police. I never would have gotten anything like that. I mean, it would have been a set of golf clubs or something that I would have gotten at Christmas, and they would have tried to keep me 
you know, reined in and chick. Well, you didn't grow up in East Texas. No, I did not grow up in East Texas. That's exactly right, (laughs) out in the the country. Kids in suburban America were a little less rambunctious. Mm -hmm. That's probably the best way to put it. My rules were when my mama honked the horn on her car, it was time for me to come home. And the unwritten rule was I just had to be within earshot of the car horn. We were usually within earshot of my dad whistling. So, I mean, we were all over the neighborhood, always outside. I mean, even in the winter. I mean, we played in the snow, and then, heck, you'd go inside and dry your stuff off, eat lunch, and go right back outside playing in the snow. You, you two probably don't have any experience with that. Little. Very little. <laughs> Building big snow forts when it's, you know. We got some sleet one year. Five degrees outside or whatever. <laughs> Terry, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your role within the University of Arkansas and what you do. Because you, you, you overlap a little bit with me, but, but I want them to at least understand what your role is in yeah. Arkansas. At Arkansas, we do it a little bit different. So you know my colleague, Travis Fosky, very well. And so Travis and I actually have the same row crop responsibilities. But what we've done, and, and we have a new row crop pathologist, Camilla Nicoli. I don't want to fail to mention her, but what we've done is we've sort of tried to divide by our – general expertise. So I will work with soybean foliar and soilborne diseases. I'll work with cotton foliar and soilborne diseases, corn, uh, do just a little bit of rice. And I do all the wheat extension uh, plant pathology in the state. Travis Fosky does all the peanut plant pathology in the state. Okay. So generally speaking, it's applied science, a lot of product testing, variety evaluations, things like that. That's basically our extension arm. Uh, I have a research appointment, too, and so I spend a lot of time writing writing code, lots of geospatial analyses. My interest in the research side is I want to understand why there's disease right there or in that field or this cluster of disease of the same disease in this part of the county, whatever. Do a lot of drone work, remote sensing with satellite imagery, image analysis. That's my research bucket of my program. And so I'm interested in understanding that epidemiology a little bit different way than traditional epidemiology because I think ultimately that's going to be the way that we we scout in the future. So we're collecting data towards technology that will allow us to scout somewhat remotely utilizing robotics and things like that. So traditional extension plant pathology, uh, uh, plant pathology, but also that. Well, and that's the direction most people, I think, on university campuses are tending to go with some of the drone-type satellite technology and whatnot. And, and I've dabbled in that just enough to be really dangerous and unfortunately don't have near the background some days that I wish I had. We did that when I was at A&M. Um, the group that I worked with did a lot of that, looking at um, sugar beet diseases, and they did a bunch of that with some of the wheat streak mosaic virus work we did up in the high plains of Texas. They did tons of satellite imagery work on that, and, and they had their own camera. They'd fly in an airplane and all the rest of that type of stuff, and that just that was back in the days of NDVI infancy when you were doing some of that work in the field with handheld devices and all the rest of that, and I, and I just I never really got into that. That's I'm the guy that likes to get down on my hands and knees and covered in dirt and sweat and all the rest of it. But I, and, and we all do that, so I'm not saying you don't. I know Jason does that. We all do a bunch of that because that's kind of that's our breadbasket, so to speak, of what we do. Well, let me, let me say this. The 
all of that stuff is cool. And I can write code to do something really neat on the computer in a week or so, or maybe even a weekend now that I've been doing it a while. None of it means anything unless I spend the hours out in the field to validate what I'm doing. And unfortunately, in the ag tech space, stuff like that's happening way too often. Just a little nugget there for the listeners. No, I'm glad you said that because that's, I think sometimes that's the hardest part to talk about when we talk about all these new technologies and you get into some of these groups where they're trying to focus a lot of that unless you're down looking at it on the field level. And, and really the one I think we are exposed to more in plant pathology right now is all the spore trapping. Mm-hmm. conversation That's right. so if you have a spore but you don't have the environment are you going to have disease or not you have a spore that's there what does that mean and that that's a hard thing to talk about and you know heck they give us 20 minutes on the program and in a lot of cases i try not to talk about some of those things because it's over my head sometimes so it's definitely over the head of some of the people in the audience and it just gets confusing. It's too much background to talk about. And that's not even, that's not even why I got you in here to talk this morning, but that's, it's good to talk about that. So Terry, Tom says you do things a little bit different than what maybe some of us old guys do with just our small plot minor. Well, they're 25 feet now. They were 30 feet for a long time, but four rows by 30, 40 feet, you know, different people use different styles. So yours is a little bit unique amongst the small plot research why don't you tell folks how you do things and then what you think the value is in the way that you do it the small plot what i call small plot replicated trials what you just just described those have tremendous value let me say that i we do that in my lab but that's about half of our field trialing now the other half is we seek out opportunities on farm and the talk the the work that i'm going to talk about today and then I'll talk about it at our crop management conference. I've been doing trials on soybean and cotton, these what I call a large plot or a large block replicated strip trial, where it's just foliar fungicides that we're applying. We happen to be going out at R3 on soybean. This is a project funded by our Arkansas Soybean Promotion Board. They've been funding it for four years. The main objective of this is to work with the farmer. It's just to target farmers that are interested, work with the county agents, let give them an opportunity on their farm to see trialing, see how we do it, see the value of replication, and then they learn something, and we give them a nice report at the end. So they've got some results that came from their farm and that they can use. And that's, that's objective number one. The other objective, and the reason why we do this, is because on a station, if I put all 50 of my trials for that year on one station, Maybe I don't have any disease pressure at Roller. Maybe I don't have any disease pressure at Pine Tree. Maybe I just have limited disease pressure. If I spread that out from Eudora to Hoxie, way up in northeast Arkansas, and I have all kinds of trials in between, I have the opportunity to get all kinds of varieties to look at. I have all kinds of different management styles, and, you know, i most of the trials are going to be planted on beds. They're furrow irrigated, so there's not, a lot of, there's not a lot of variability in that. But I get a lot of different disease pressure, get a lot of crop rotation histories that are different. You know, I might have beans behind rice in five trials and beans behind corn in the rest. And we normally do 10 to 12 of these on the soybean side a year. We do four or five, well, three or four on the cotton. And that cotton stuff is 
funded by our Arkansas Cotton State Support Board. Really thankful for both of those boards that fund this. We get a lot out of it, and I think our growers, our county agents, consultants we're cooperating with, they get a lot out of it too. It's the most fun work that I do, those two projects. I'll just say that. I really enjoy them. Working with the growers you know, offers them a comfort level as a group when you can demonstrate that, hey, we did this on the farm. And so they, they may, you know, one grower may not know that other guy because he's in a different part of the state, but there's some credibility just having done that work on farm that wasn't on a research station in a super controlled environment. I've had trouble with it over the years. It just, to me, we controlled doesn't lend itself uh, to that as much. I always tell people, you know, if I don't control pigweeds for a year, my grandkids got pigweeds, right? And, and so if I go chasing stuff like that and, and then my stuff doesn't work that I'm testing, and then I've messed up a guy's field. And I think with plant pathology and entomology, doesn't have that dynamic of that seed bank to it. Maybe y'all more than, than entomology does because there are some pathogens that could persist. Well, and you have to go where the problems are, right? Yeah. And so we, we've had some really good trials in Arkansas County. And we've learned a lot from those trials. And then, you know, we've been able to go back and sample those trials for some other work that we're doing with, like, fungicide resistance. And that's taught us a lot. So these trials give us the opportunity to be, you know, spread out geographically throughout the state, get a bunch of different disease pressures. And then also we can use these trials for a number of things, another number of learning opportunities from a research and extension standpoint. So, you know, really beneficial and versatile work to be on farm and doing what's really a simple trial. I mean, normally they're, you know, we have a fungicide standard, we have a non-treated, everything's replicated three times. And then we ask the grower, the consultant, what else do you want to see in the trial? And if they say, hey, we want to see Quadris Top SBX, used it for years. I want to see how it compares. I want to see you know, Revitech. Okay, we put it in there. Sometimes they want two in there. We, we do that. What do you want? I show up with the product. I show up with my Mudmaster. I like to say, have Mudmaster, we'll travel. And so we, it's got a 30-foot boom, and we just spray it. We do everything. They harvest it, and I get the yield monitor data and, and you know, analyze it that way, rate the trial. I do everything. Sometimes, you know, if they don't have a yield monitor that they want to use or they trust, we use Waywagon. The county agents are great with helping with that part of it. But that's how we do it. So that's real similar to the type stuff that Trent does with his on-farm variety trials and Eric and, and Brian, all those guys, the way they do that. You get a smaller sample of the big variety trial, and then they replicate it. And then, of course, repeat it. In, you know, over those different locations. And uh, the, I think they get a lot of mileage out of that as well. Well, I think, Terry, you've done a good job highlighting some some things I think we question from a standpoint of particular diseases. The two that come to mind, Septoria and Target Spot, and I think Carl Bradley and I touched on those because they seem to be becoming a little bit more important. And when I say more important, I think a lot of people are paying a little bit more attention to them. And I think we're probably paying more attention to them because they've become resistant to just about everything that we've flown on for the last decade. Because we have a fairly narrow group of fungicides within an even narrower group of active ingredients and I hate that we missed some of the stuff we were talking about before and I'm trying to figure out how to work that in but 
where do you see fungicide technology going or product availability based on what you've done and what's coming down the pipeline and probably what farmers are talking about? Well, I think what people talk about uh, with respect to what fungicide I'm going to buy and apply is, is pretty different than the conversations that they need to be having, unfortunately. And I think to touch on what you just said, narrow group of chemistries, I'll add to that, we've been spraying them all at once. How, long, how many years have we been spraying three-way mixes and things? How, right? many, how many times have you heard me say at meetings and I don't say it publicly and I don't probably catch myself and I should say it more regularly, but I think it's not a good idea to be prepackaging basically the three main modes of action and using those as automatic applications based on timing because we're going to need those products to manage something in the future. And purely speculative here, it's not going to work because whatever we're going to try to manage is already developed resistance, not to just one active ingredient or class of chemistry. It's all three of them. Well, well that's right. And, and unfortunately, um, and we're not ready to talk about the specifics yet, but I have a graduate student that I share with Alejandro Rojas and Travis Foskey is also on that project that's funded by our soybean board looking at fungicide resistance in target spot. When we put that out there, there's multiple mutations for multiple modes of action. And some of these fungi have both mutations, Tom. And this is a problem. Uh, and so what do I say to your question about how are we going to manage in the future? I'll look to our colleagues in weed science and say, how, do you, how have you guys managed? You know, what, what are we going to do? I don't know. I think with us, though, with the variety selection is going to be Number one, right? We have to start there. We're going to have to know what are the field histories and farm histories, the problems that have habitually happened on those farms with respect to foliar diseases. What about these varieties? I, I truly believe that those that sell seed, those that buy seed, those that consult, everybody has got to say, look, y'all, we need more years of data in variety tests, robust variety tests, small plot replicated trials, a bunch of them. We need to know these varieties better. We need to understand their susceptibility and resistance. We need to understand the disease package that we're planting, and we need to start our management there. And then if we need a fungicide later, fine, we'll do our very best. I think the chemistries, though, we're going to have available. I don't know that other than a few select diseases like QOI, I'll say this today, with respect to aerial blight, QOI, strobulurins, still really effective on Rhizoctonia solani, still really effective on aerial blight. And I run into that in some of my strip trials. I've got good examples of, of those three-way mixes being very effective. What else are they effective on, Tom, in soybean? Where, where would you trust a premix that had most of its AI tied up in a strobulurin in soybean. And where would you recommend that product? And we're not going to talk about specific products, but where would you recommend that? That's not an easy question to answer. Because, it is not for me either. Because my, my mind's going towards what you're saying about, you know, field history. And I think we, we need more field history from a standpoint of what was your product selection over a period of years and to consider how that may have 
completely changed the spectrum in that field because from the ecological evolutionary standpoint, you've impacted the organisms that are present within your field and how your previous management practices have changed those may impact your future management alternatives. So it all goes back to sound IPM. We've got to manage diseases from a multifaceted or using a multifaceted approach if we're going to do this correctly. And we're going to have to understand how our use of product and variety and the selection pressure that we've imposed on the system has changed that system. Your dad worked with Dr. Kirkpatrick, Terry Kirkpatrick, for years and years and years on his farm. And one of the things that Terry taught me and said to me from the time I was a master's student, I first met him, was knowledge is power. We have to know. We have to know. And so Terry would always tell people that knowledge is power. You need to know. We don't know enough, then we need to learn it. If we don't know enough, we need to design tests to learn it. That's what we have to do as plant pathologists. We know that this is a huge question, the one that we just asked each other. And we have to build our research programs around answering these fundamental questions, which is how are we going to manage when our fungicides don't work nearly as well as we need them to in the future? And I think we're real close to being to that point. Well, and plant pathologists, I'll be the first person to admit I'm not done near as good a job as the weed scientist. And, that, you know, when we podcasted yesterday, again, I'm flying back on that with Steckel and, and Culpepper, and talked about the whole Endangered Species Act and all that. I mean, all pesticide uses are potentially to be impacted in the future. And I think we all need to work together within our different disciplines to figure out how we, as plant pathologists, as an example, can do a better job addressing some of those issues because, unfortunately, it's a little more difficult to detect the resistance. It's not something you're going to see. You don't spray a clump of Johnson grass and the Johnson grass doesn't die. You can see that from the road. You can't see what you and I deal with, Terry, from the road. And that is problematic. No. But one of the things that we can do, and we do, all of us in extension in the Mid-South, is we're, at least we should be, is communicating with our farmers and consultants and county agents on a regular basis. I have a former grad student that's now a consultant in South Arkansas, Justin Bailey. Great kid. Love to talk to him. He'll call me and tell me, hey, you know, I've got, I've got disease moving in a field that we've sprayed. This, this field is cutting out too early, and we sprayed this field. What's going on? And so, you know, if we're listening to them and what they're telling us their problems are, then that's our first step in doing a better job is getting out there and addressing the problems that we know exist in the production area. And we've got to listen and tailor our programs around a lot of that. And we know what's going on, but... Like the septoria thing. I saw septoria causing pretty substantial yield loss in a couple of trials first two years I was doing this project. Before that, I didn't believe that septoria necessarily caused yield loss. We see it in every field. But in this case, it was substantial. That consultant has told me about numerous fields where he swears up and down. He says, you know what, this septoria is causing us problems. And I'm not sure we're getting control of it. So this is something we've got to address. you got to be plugged in, man, because there's no way that you can be everywhere and see everything. And you mentioned credibility earlier. And if you take a one-off event as 
gospel for statewide, then, you know, you're fooling yourself and you're going to look foolish in the process. And so, but if a guy calls you and, and has an issue, okay, well, that's a thing. You know, communicate with him, help him out how you can. Then the second guy calls with a similar issue, maybe they're just right down the road from each other. Eh, it could be just a coincidence. When the third guy calls you three counties over, now you got a pattern, right? It takes three points to make a straight line. And, and you really, and I think that's how you build these things that you're talking about. you got to be dialed in to the people that are your eyes and ears on the ground because there's only one of us or two of us or three, however many there are. You just can't be everywhere at once. And we almost can't be specialized in all the diseases that impact just a single crop either. And, that, and that's, I mean, Jason, you would say the same thing about weeds. Oh, absolutely. You're, you're probably the go-to guy on Italian ryegrass in the mid-southern United States. Daniel Stevenson's the Johnson grass guru in that particular part of the region. So, and that's... I think I have a decent background in a couple of the diseases in soybean, but all of them, no. So I think Terry making that comment about septoria is definitely, I think I could scratch my head. I mean, I think there's a varietal component that fits in there, and we definitely have some fungicide resistance that's continuing to develop within that pathogen population. And that's not one we've devoted enough time to for a couple of reasons. It's not easy to deal with in the laboratory. Uh, and it's really hard sometimes to find somebody to do the lab work in plant pathology. They don't like sitting in the hood or they don't want to sit with a microscope in their eyes for, you know, an eight-hour day because I've done plenty of that myself, and it's mind-numbing. Hey, put me in that group. Oh, yeah, you've, you've done that too. <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> you've done it too. You already, you know, and you learn from doing that that you know you don't want to do that. it. Well, but I think it speaks to – like, like you just said, how diverse we have to be in our crops, in our programs, in the diseases we're dealing with, the pests that we're dealing with, and then also, you know, we, how we have to communicate. Tom and Terry and Trey Price at LSU and Travis at Arkansas and, and, and everybody, we've got to be in communication throughout the year and doing work together, collaborative work, so that we can understand what the problems are. And like you said, Jason, we've got to understand – What's just a one-off issue, an odd issue, an outlier, and what's really a problem? And the only way to do that is with data. That's right. It's, it's all evidence-driven. It's data-driven. So we have to put out the trials, and we have to test that. And that's the most important thing about our programs. We have become the applied scientist. Extension has become the applied scientist. And so we have to go out. We have to be in the field. we got to put out a ton of tests and run with our hair on fire all year to get the work done we need to do. Because like in Arkansas, we got 3 million acres of soybeans. And that's a lot of ground to cover and a lot of problems to work with. There's no shortage of issues, though. And that's the fun thing about being a plant pathologist. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you could call it fun. Some, some days it can be a little, it can be taxing. It, it can. I enjoy it, though. I enjoy the challenge, and I enjoy the... I enjoy the research. I really do. And I, you can put me in the same category. I don't want to sit in the lab. I don't want to sit in the office. I want to be outside. Terry, what, what, what would you want to say to, to wrap this up? What's take-home nugget from your presentation that you're going to make at Short Course today and, and the work that you've done over the last few years? Yeah, so the take-home is, is, one, you know, we need to be looking very close at, at varieties. And we need to do an even better job at understanding the disease packages that are in these varieties that we're planting. 
And the only way to do that is with more data and more years of more data, right? The second thing is, from my talk, what we've seen, we've done 41 on-farm trials in four years, all replicated, non-treated, all that, okay? What we've seen is the trend is beans at R3 in June, when it's hot, probably dry, like our weather patterns typically are, not always, but we don't see we don't have much a high, high likelihood of seeing a yield response there with, with fungicide application because we don't have the disease pressure. Boy, those later beans, those later maturing beans, we start making those applications at R3 in late July and even August, man, we're seeing, we're seeing a response. Not always. That's just the general trend over 41 trials. The last thing is we're seeing a dip in efficacy when we look at products that have a QOI, a strobularin component versus products that don't. And industry is shifting there, right? You've seen the Miravis Top from Syngenta, Lucento from FMC, the Revy Lock from BASF. They're taking that strobularin out. There's good reason for that. We built up resistance out there, and the data reflects that. We're seeing the lag, and I'll show that today. Thanks, man. Always good to see you. Really appreciate it. And I, I think you're right. I mean, we do need to do a better job working together, talking. Well, I like you, Tom, though. I like talking to you about plant pathology and other things. <laughs> I mean, you know. I appreciate it. And it, it was nice to meet you, Jason. I enjoyed dinner last yeah, night. Yeah, man. Thank, thank, you. thank you for coming over to the short course. I know that's a. this is not the best time of year to, to travel with the holidays and everything, family obligations, but I hope you and your family have a very Merry Christmas, and, and we'll see you at a meeting somewhere else, I'm sure. Yeah, same to y'all. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension. 